It's a delight to be here with you this morning, and I have been experiencing the love of God through each of you, so thank you for the warm welcome. I had a pretty simple upbringing. Much of my time was spent in three worlds, uh, school, playing outside, and good old TV. Some of my earliest memories were watching The Muppet Show or Fraggle Rock. Any Muppet Show or Fraggle Rock people out there? All right. Yeah. <laughs> As I grew older, I got into sports. <clears throat> it was especially exciting during playoff time when one of the Boston teams was in the mix. I know I'm in a strange place here in Connecticut because you, you're so close to the New York stuff, and I know that Connecticut can sometimes go one way or the other, but I was a Boston fan. In the 90s, sports changed because of a guy named Michael Jordan. He's a basketball player for the Chicago Bulls. Very talented, very talented. Uh, Being a Boston fan, I didn't really care for the guy. Uh, You could say I even hated him. But still, his life was pretty interesting. As such, uh, Michael's life was a narrative in the sports channel, the ESPN, loved to broadcast the stories of his life. Uh, With his big game performances, uh, he became highly marketable. Nike, Gatorade, McDonald's, Hanes gave him contracts to do some TV commercials for him. Uh, He would sell shoes and hamburgers, sports drinks, and I I wonder if you remember the, uh, sometimes I dream that he is me like Mike. I could be like Mike. All these stories are a part of Michael's narrative. When you think of somebody with a great or an interesting narrative, who comes to mind? Are you like me and Michael Jordan comes to mind? Even though I don't really appreciate the guy. Maybe it's a, a Bible character. Regardless of who it is, you're likely able to recall some of those stories that make up their narrative. A narrative is an overarching, big-picture view of somebody's life. For Michael and those living, our narratives are still being developed. They are being built on a daily basis through smaller, isolated stories, or isolated events we call stories. David and Goliath is an isolated story within the biblical narrative. We need to take care of how we see the story of David and Goliath or our practical application will miss. We can look at this story in a couple of different ways. We could look at it through Western lens or Western eyes, or we could look at it through Middle Eastern eyes. When we look through a Western lens, I usually put myself in the place of the main character. In this passage, as it may be well known, I become David, and I tend to view difficult people or situations as Goliath to slay. Well, let's get practical with this interpretation. Who here has some giants in their life? Difficult people, difficult circumstances, right? We all think we all do at some point. Uh, But how are you doing against those Goliaths? 
if you're anything like me, you're not probably doing too well against them. On one hand, uh, you could beat him, or you couldn't beat him, rather. Uh, you get frustrated, then and he quit. I just can't do this anymore. This is, this is ridiculous. I, I don't know why God has me up against this. I'm supposed to be trusting him and walking right through these things and slaying it with one stone, and it's just not there. Or, on the other hand, I do slay Goliath. Put him down with one shot. I walk out of that building. Look what I did. Now I have a high view of myself. These are the practical applications of looking at it through a Western lens. It's a very me-centered type way, but both, uh, both of these interpretations are unbiblical because both are driven by me. Conversely, reading with Middle Eastern lens means that the author is talking around the main point or theme. Think of the Gospels, right? You have the book of Matthew, and the book of Matthew is Jesus as king. So there's story after story telling of his coming kingdom or the king. Starts out with a genealogy, starts out with King David, and then it goes down through until we get to the person of Christ. And in about somewhere around 28 times in the book of Matthew, we read about this kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Or how about the book of Mark? Mark is Jesus as servant, so story after story, of talking around these, this theme of servant. Luke is Jesus as man. John, Jesus as God. The author is talking around the main point or theme. These stories make up or build a narrative by talking around the main point from a slightly different angle for the main purpose of getting a more full rendering of Christ. And who doesn't want a more full rendering of Christ? We all do, right? It's important to remember that the Bible was written by Middle Easterners. Uh, I'm going to suggest two books for you if you're a, a book person or a studier, uh, extra biblical stuff. Uh, one is uh, Seeing Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Ken Bailey. Seeing Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Ken Bailey. And a second book would be Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes by Brandon O'Brien. Brandon O'Brien. Uh, now that we are set to read with Middle Eastern lenses, let's go back to the biblical narrative situation for a second. And um, <clears throat> to understand this question of biblical narrative, I wanted to start out in Genesis uh, chapters 1 to 3 and just give us a quick little shot of what happened in there. God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh. Man and woman were created uniquely, they were put into the garden to tend and to keep it. And they were basically told, do anything you want here except for to eat from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what did they do? They play happily ever after, and they, they did what they were supposed to do, and everything just moved along all pleasant, right? No. Now we know what happened. 
and put us in there long enough, each one of us, we would have done the same thing, taken from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eaten from it. You know, they had a little bit of help from uh, some persuasion. Nevertheless, they took of the fruit and ate of it. So directly after eating from it, God catches up with them who were involved, Adam, Eve, and Satan. And I want to key in on one verse particularly, Genesis 3.15. It says, uh, this is God's punishment to Satan for being deceptive. He says, I will put enmity or hostility between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is actually the very first gospel account in Scripture. Within this vague statement, we get the plot of the narrative. Who is the one who's going to bruise the head? Who's the one who's going to, I'm sorry, bruise his heel? Who's the one who's going to crush the head? As this Old Testament narrative develops, is it Adam? No. Abraham? No. Isaac? No. Jacob? Joseph? Moses? Joshua? A judge? A prophet? How about a king? No, no to all of these. David comes perhaps the closest, but he'll be a no as well. David, just as many of the Israelite leaders before him, is a type of Christ. In other words, we get a glimpse of this head crusher through his life story. Remember, Middle Eastern eyes, we're talking around the point uh, still, just as every other Israelite, David has the nature of sin in his members, and he will prove that he'll need to be saved as well. Before moving on, but for, uh, for clarity's sake, uh, Jesus will be the head crusher, as if there was any doubt. Uh, but how did we get there? Why isn't it somebody else? Why isn't it you or me? And one of the easiest ways to understand the Old Testament is that it is story after story of God revealing who will not be the head crusher. So let's take a look at today's passage as we read it with Middle Eastern eyes. Uh, I'll be in um, 1 Samuel 17, I think it's uh, 2.39 in your books, if I had read that correct out of the uh, bulletin. Uh, As you're turning there, some context uh, would be important. So uh, Samuel... One, um, yeah, First Samuel 16 to 32 is the third section of this book, and it tells us about Saul and David. In chapter 15, uh, we see that God rejects Saul as king. He was disobedient and uh, going to the Amalekites and taking care of them as God had desired. And then in chapter 16, we learn of Saul's successor, David, And now here in chapter 17, we see David begin to emerge. Verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they gathered at Soka, which belonged to Judah, and encamped between Soka and Azekah in Ephesus Damon. 
And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped at the valley of Elah and drew a line against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the other side of the mountain and Israel stood on the other side within, uh, with a valley between them. The first thing to notice is this phrase, Soka, which belonged to Judah. The Philistines had taken this stronghold from Israel. It was one of the last strongholds before Jerusalem. It was about 20 miles west-southwest of Jerusalem. That's about the distance between Hartford and Coventry. Not very far to go. And the riverbed was dried out, making a nice pathway to Jerusalem if they could take Soka. Verse 4. Then they came out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose uh, height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his leg and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield-bearer went before him. Goliath is a champion. The pulpit commentary says that a champion is one who enters a space between two armies in order to decide a contest in a single battle, in a single battle. War was expensive. People and gear strategizing, food, time away from work. In order to lessen this cost, it was common to have a champion, a person who would represent the whole nation, square off against the other nation's champion to decide a battle. For the Philistines, it was Goliath of Gath. Gath was, he, he was, uh, uh, Goliath was most likely a uh, descendant of the Anakim. Okay, we see this in Joshua 11, uh, 21 and 22. I'm not going to read that, but for reference. Uh, he stood somewhere between 8 and 11 feet tall. Um, commentaries vary on this one. Nevertheless, he's a big boy. He's a big boy. Uh, defensively, <coughs> bronze. Uh, bronze was probably copper back in that day because bronze wasn't around until later on, but nevertheless, he had a, a helmet and a coat, which weighed 120 pounds, uh, leg armor and a shield. Offensively, he had a javelin, a spear attached to a weaver's beam. Something that's interesting to note about this weaver's beam is that it's about two and a half inches in diameter. It was bigger than most. And then the spearhead alone weighed 15 pounds. I wonder, the last time you went bowling, did you use the 15-pound balls? I'm more of like a 13, 12-pounder, but anyways. And later on, we learn about him having a sword. In verse 8, I will continue to read. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come down to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. When Saul and all the Israelites heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. As Goliath taunts the ranks of Israel, Saul is likely likely within earshot. 
Certainly all of the military leaders are there because this is the last stronghold before Jerusalem. However, they have no answer. No champion. No one to send. So Saul and Israel worry. Remember in chapter 15, uh, Saul disobeyed God's orders to wipe out the Amalekites and God rejected him. Saul had taken his eyes off of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if it wasn't the Lord whom Saul was trusting, who was he trusting? I'd submit to you that he was likely trusting himself. And sometimes we get caught into that same predicament of trusting ourselves or perhaps another person when we should have been trusting the Lord. I had a mentor of mine, he says, eyes on the king. Real simple, right? But very profound in its application, eyes on the king. I wonder if Saul's eyes were on the king instead of himself and how good he looked, head and shoulders above the rest, that maybe things would have gone differently that day against the Amalekites. So now if uh, these uh, Philistines, Saul is shaken and doesn't know what to do, and I wonder if you've been there too, trusted in self, leaned on your own understanding, and then the rug got pulled out from underneath you. It's an awful feeling. It's an awful feeling. And uh, fear and worry tend to mix in and amplify the shame. So let's continue with the text. Uh, verse 12, now David, the son of an Ethrathite of Bethlehem of Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of the three were uh, Eliab, the firstborn, the next to him, Abinadab, and the third was Shema. David was the youngest. The three of the eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistines came, took a stand, morning and evening. Jesse's three oldest fought in Saul's army. We can't say for sure, but they were probably with Saul when he fought the Amalekites. This would mean that they watched the Lord reject Saul, their king, their leader. What does that do for morale? I'd imagine it caused questioning in the least. Should we follow this guy? The evidence was clear. No soldier wanted to step up and face Goliath. By the way, who was the tallest? Saul. How come he don't want to go? And then there's the youngest, David. He had a connection to his brothers, but he was not a part of the military. His father was asking him to take a 16-mile round-trip journey to his brothers on a daily basis to bring them supplies. Verse 19 is a summary of 19 to 24. David arrives, and, uh, uh, arrives as the Israelites head to the edge of the mountain for the next standoff. He gets a front-row seat <clears throat> for Goliath to perform his daily taunts, and then the Israelites... Eventual retreat. Verse 25. And then the next couple of verses, we see the Israelites trying to incentivize one another. Hey, kill Goliath. 
Saul will give you his daughter, house, tax-free living. Awesome, bro. That sounds great. Let me get out of the way here and then uh, go ahead. You go for it. The incentivizing was not working. Why not? Because it was based on something other than pleasing God. What would it have been in it for them if they got one of Saul's daughters, a house, tax-free living? Sounds kind of selfish when you just start to prioritize it out. Not that any of those things are bad or innately sinful in and of themselves, but what's their motive? If it wasn't to please God, the cost is just too high. What are you incentivized by? What do you value? I love the work that God has tasked me with. My world doesn't revolve around my job. I love my wife and my kids. I would imagine that you guys do as well. But as dear as people are and as dear as work is, do they pale in comparison to Christ? I've got Jesus. How could I want any more? Again, while people and work are important, I've got my material things, that's fine. But do they pale in comparison to pleasing Christ? Verse 28, Eliab overhears David's desire to, and proceeds to check him. Uh, this is classic unchecked jealousy, which leads to a misinterpretation of conflict. Eliab says, stay in your lane, David. Dad told you to deliver food. Now go home. This is not your fight. What we see unfolding here is revealed in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck or the minor offense that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log, the major offense that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice how he's not saying to ignore the speck in your brother's eye, but that you've got to have a right eye, a clear eye, before you go and do that to another person. And notice that when that doesn't happen, when you've got a log in your eye and you go and try to confront somebody else, wife, husband, coworker, boss, things don't usually go too well. Hasn't been my experience that they go too well. When I call out somebody else and I've got a log in my eye, confrontation is good, but I've got to make sure that I'm in right standing with the Lord before I do that to another person, or else I get a result like Eliab is about to get with David. While this is happening, other people overheard what David had said, his desire to kill Goliath. And they went and took his words back to Saul. And Saul was intrigued by this. He called for David. Pick it up at verse 32. 
to 40, I'm actually going to summarize these and say uh, uh, Saul and, and David talk. Uh, David states his case to challenge Goliath. Saul gives consent and then proceeds to equip him. However, the gear is too much for David. And he opts to use what he is used to. Verse 39, David strapped his sword over his armor and then he tried to go in vain. For he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I can't go with these for I have not tested these. So David put them off and he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistines. It's noteworthy here uh, in Judges uh, chapter 20, verse 16, it tells us that uh, David's descendants were among 700 chosen men, left-handed, Every one of them could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Uh, I wonder if you get out your phone, if you would just check and see if that's still a Guinness Book of World Record. Uh, most amount of left-handed slingshotters to pick off a hair. <laughs> Certainly just kidding, but uh, anybody here slingshotter? No, it's not something that we usually look at today as something that's uh, widespread of use. Uh, I wonder if the people online, I know we've got some people online, welcome. Uh, I know it's a little bit late for that, welcome, but nevertheless, maybe you online are a slingshotter. Good. It's kind of obscure, but David had inherited this skill. Sometimes we don't need the latest and greatest technology. Instead, God has provided us with unique skills or experiences to glorify his name. What has God entrusted you with? And maybe you've got a mind for business. Maybe you just naturally build businesses and, and they just they flourish. No problem. Maybe you're really good with food, you know, just culinary. You're able to blend seasonings and spices and make extravagant dinners without even thinking about it. Maybe you're really good mechanically wise. Small engines, you can just look at them and, or listen to them and you hear, oh, I know you've got to turn that little knob there and then everything runs correctly. But what do we do with these skills? Why would God just give these things to us? In part, there is some semblance of some practicality to them. They're good, useful skills to have. But I hope that you would be using these to show people Christ. That in the small engine failure, that you'd be able to uh, show that person and deflect any kind of praise to the Lord. Say, oh, the Lord gave me that skill, that ability. Uh, me personally, I come from a, a background where I dealt with addiction. So personally, I know what a person goes through who is addicted. And so God has helped me out of that captivity of things in order to help other captives out of that same type of scenario. I'd imagine in a crowd this size that there are experiences and skills in here, whatever you have, that God is trying to use to point others to him, especially if you have a relationship with him. David does just this with his slingshotting. 
verse 41, Goliath creeps closer, and he and his armor-bearer watched David gather these stones. It began to register with Goliath that this was going to be his opponent. Wait, what? After 40 days? This is whom Israel is going to send forward? Goliath begins to fire insults at David and God. But David pushes back with insults of his own, trashing Goliath and projecting victory in the Lord. Verse 46, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Verse 48, when the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. David kills Goliath with one shot. I want to tie up loose ends on seeing the text with Western eyes here. In recent years, a false doctrine has emerged that if I, as a child of the Most High, am faced with a difficult situation, I am to trust God as David did and knock that giant out. Bear with me for a second. When we make ourselves the hero, we get it wrong. Who's the hero here? Is it David? Mm -mm. It was God. Today, it still is God. When we make ourselves the hero, we get it wrong. So if it's not about David, it's not about you, it's not about me, let's interpret the text through Middle Eastern eyes. Remember, a Middle Easterner would have read this and understood that God was talking around a point. What's the point? Back to Genesis 3.15. We are looking for someone, a head crusher. David draws near, proceeds to load a stone into his sling and revs up his arm. He releases the stone, which not only hits Goliath, but sinks into his head, knocking him out. He runs over to the lifeless body. David takes Goliath's sword and decapitates him. This is a glimpse of the fulfilling promise of Christ, uh, a promise in 315. Now remember, David is not Jesus. David's not the guy. However, he is the guy who sought to please Jesus, the actual head crusher whom fulfills 316. Jesus is Satan's head crusher. Just as it took David one shot to knock out Goliath, it took Jesus one shot to crush Satan's head. In 3.15 as well, uh, we see the second part of the verse indicates that Satan will wound Jesus' heel. What's going on with that? Theologian John Calvin notes that while Jesus would suffer a wound by by his death on the cross, it would ultimately be insignificant as a wound to a person's heel. Yet the more significant head-crushing blow was dealt to Satan, which sealed his fate of eternal punishment. If we should concede a point here about the giants of our life, it should not be about a difficult person or a situation. It should not be about a boss. 
It should not be about a spouse or a child or your outlaws, I mean your in-laws. It should not be about health issues or financial woes. It should be about sin and death. Two things that you and I could do nothing about, but that Jesus took care of in one shot. Amen? We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We do not fight against other people, but against the sin inside of us by trusting the one who crushed it. We do not trust ourselves to be the hero, trust Christ, who is the hero, and then give him the glory. In Colossians 1.29, it says that I strive with him who works within me mightily. Strive with him who works within me mightily. There is a synergistic if you're understanding this term, there is a both and that you are working with Christ, with the Holy Spirit, walking with him as he leads you, striving with him mightily. Crushing sin is, you're talking about principalities and powers that really Christ took care of. So we have to trust him to take care of that in our own lives. In other words, don't lean on your own understandings. Don't trust yourself. Trust Christ. And walk through that as you walk with him through that. Really, that's, yeah. Verse 58. Intrigued, Saul asked David about his father. Um, as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? David answered and said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. I just find this, this is just a, a really cool, I just see this picture in my head of uh, David having decapitated Saul, I mean, uh, Goliath, right? Walking into Saul's chambers with the head in his hands. He just puts it down right down there. Don't put it down on the couch. I just bought that couch. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, in victory, in Christ, who's your father? Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good deeds and honor your father who is in heaven. David says, my father is Jesse the Bethlehemite. But our Heavenly Father, His Heavenly Father, is Christ, is Jesus. You honor Him when that victory is there as you walk with Him through those giant moments in your life where the only solution is to trust Him, strive with Him as He works within you mightily. It's time to land the plane. We've learned about God's plot in Genesis 3.15, and the narrative being the individual stories that add up to Jesus being the hero. We learned about reading through uh, Middle Eastern eyes instead of me-centered eyes. I want to close by asking you a question. There are several main players in today's story. 
Whom do you identify with the most? I'm going to give you three. Maybe you got your own, but I've got Saul. Okay, Saul's dealing with trust issues, trapped in awe of himself and others instead of God. Scripture says that this is a trap. We need to be vigilant of what our heart is valuing. It's okay to value other people or even yourself to some degree, but do you, does that pale in comparison to valuing Christ, that he would be the treasure of your life? The, the ministry that uh, the Lord has been so gracious to provide me, True Treasure Ministries, uh, Matthew thirteen forty four. it says that a man go off and found in the, in the field a treasure. And when he saw that treasure, he went away and he sold everything that he had so that he could buy that field. Is that the way that it is for you with Christ? That you've seen something so valuable within him that it's worthy of dispensing with all else? or at least reprioritizing it so that Jesus doesn't just get a section of your life, but that he is supreme in your life? Or do you wrestle like Saul? Are you captivated by something else? Does Jesus have just a corner of your life that he's just compartmentalized in there? Let's learn from Saul. It doesn't go well when we think that way. I'm reading some good books. The Joy of Fearing the Lord by Jerry Bridges. Excellent book, Fearing the Lord. We've read today in Psalm 103 about fearing the Lord. How does that change our, our mind, our perspective? We learn to value Christ differently in those regards. Uh, I, I would entrust that to you. Um, another one in here that we might identify with is Goliath. And I don't want to identify with Goliath so much in his person, but by what Goliath would represent Sin and death. You can try to take on sin and death, but it will taunt you daily. You can try to take on sin and death, but it will taunt you daily. Defeating Goliath was more about Christ, more about Jesus than it was David. Defeating sin in your life is more about striving with Christ than it is about you or me. This is just one story in the narrative of Scripture. Jesus eventually going to the cross and doing what we could not do. Destroy sin, destroy death. Is your trust in the work of Jesus or is it in yourself? Last one, David. David knew God. Do you know God? I mean, not just know about him, not just know some chapter and verse, but do you know him experientially? I would submit to you that there are folks here who do know him. I was warmly greeted. I, 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 don't, I don't give you any lip service when it comes to that. When I came in here, I know that Jesus is here. Praise the Lord. I wonder if I might encourage you just to continue in doing this, to continue those skills or experiences that you have charted with Christ, that you know him. 
that you would be using those things to connect others to him as well. And some of you are sitting there, yeah, I'm like David. But maybe you're having some trouble recalling those skills and experiences being used this week to track with other people, that, that other people might track with the Lord, not just you. Might have missed that point just a little bit, but are you using the skills and experiences that God has put into your path to connect others to Christ? Now, if you're like me, you've missed. I'm sure there were moments throughout the week, just as me, that there were times when you could have shared Christ. Maybe I'm not talking about maybe a full-on gospel presentation, Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave. But maybe encouraging somebody. Maybe being a shoulder to cry on, a weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, be joyful with those who rejoice. This is this sense again of striving with Christ who works within you mightily, that you might honor your Father by telling other people of the goodness of the Lord. So a new week is before us, brothers and sisters. As we pray, as I pray here a secondly, I just want to provoke some of those thoughts in you that you might be able to connect others to Christ throughout this week. I'm trying to think of uh, maybe not throwing a, sh- a stone at somebody's head and knocking them out, but <laughs> at any rate, think of ways or take advantage of opportunities that. Christ Christ is giving you to trust him, to share him with others. That's good. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into a uh, a hymn. Father, uh, we thank you, Lord, because you reign. Lord, as we think about the Old Testament and its narrative, a story after story of your power and your might being showcased through others, that we might see you, that we might see your hands, that we might see your wisdom, that we might see your graciousness and mercy towards us. Lord, you came near to us and we rejected you. Lord, as we uh, think of this relationship with you, and maybe even for the next few days, the next week or so, how might we connect others with you? Certainly it starts with connecting ourselves to you, that we would humbly submit ourselves as a living sacrifice Lord, as we would get into your word and be uh, nourished by it, Lord. Lord, I hope that there are uh, those here who maybe are challenged by that, that uh, I hope that this is not their only exposure to you, would be a Sunday morning thing, but that they're in your word daily. Lord, you're good to us. Help us to get to know you. Help us to be known by you. Lord, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I believe we're going into a hymn uh, in your bulletin.